Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. I don't have to tell y'all it's a tough world out there. Many times all you want to do is disconnect. And a lot of us do different things. We fish. We read. But the guy I'm going to tell you about today, Dr. Larry Rudolph, he and his wife, Bianca, you know what they did to disconnect? They like to go hunting. And I'm not talking about bagging a whitetail while you're up in a deer stand somewhere. I'm talking about hopping on a plane and going to some of the most exotic locations in the world to go hunt big game. This case that we're going to discuss today is out of Zambia. This particular case took place in literally the second largest national park in the world. And at the end of the day, Dr. Rudolph's wife, Bianca, wound up dead. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. It's no secret I like to get out on my boat when I'm not recording a podcast or teaching my students. It's just the way I relax. I like to just be out on the water. Never been much of a hunter. I don't necessarily have anything against it, but the amount of money that it would take to do what Dr. Larry Rudolph did as a hobby is just astronomical. Jackie Howard's joining me today executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Jackie, I I don't think I've ever really met a big game hunter. I know a lot of hunters, you know, growing up here in the South, but this guy, he beats everything I've ever seen. Actually, Lawrence Rudolph and his wife, Bianca, were very well known in the big game hunting community. They went on these excursions often. And in fact, in this hunt, Bianca was the only one hunting. She wanted to add a leopard to her collection of animal trophies. In this hunt, Bianca was carrying two guns, a Remington 375 rifle and her Browning 12-gauge shotgun. The hunt lasted approximately two weeks, and as they were packing up early in the morning, around 5 a.m. to return home, a shot was heard from the Browning shotgun. Lawrence Rudolph said he was in the bathroom, and he thinks that the shotgun accidentally went off as Bianca was putting it back in the case. He says he found her bleeding on the floor. Now, as investigators looked at this death, they had witnesses who said they saw her packing up. Before we get into any of the details, Joe, about what happened, I'm curious. Is it possible for you to be packing a gun and shoot yourself? When you are putting away your rifle inside its case, the point is down. So how do you shoot yourself packing a gun? I don't know that it's even physically possible to accomplish this task. You would have to be a contortionist, and not just a contortionist, but if you are the person that is being struck by the round, you'd have to be remarkably tall and with rather lengthy arms and what i mean by that is that your body would have to be in such a way 
that you could extend your arms to zip the the case and in this this case she was allegedly putting the 12 gauge shotgun into a soft case some people refer to it as a scabbard it's not like a hard case that many people have seen you know that you think about audio equipment comes in or or other items that has almost looks like an instrument case this is a soft case and you know she was not a very big woman she's not you know, really, really tall. Her arm length was pretty much average for a woman her height. She was just over 5'3", I think. And so in order to have this happen, how exactly would the weapon itself discharge or actuate? You know, how, how are you going to get the mechanism within the weapon to start the firing process? Which means that that firing pin would have had to have been initiated and the pin driven forward slammed into the primer of a seated round that's in there, in this case a 12-gauge round of double-aught buckshot, and driving that into her chest, which is apparently where it wound up, it seems like it defies all the laws of physics. And one interesting little aside here is that it has been put forth that the round passed not just out of the end of the muzzle, but it passed through the end of the soft case and then into her body, which again makes this all the more suspicious. So let's play devil's advocate a little here, Joe. Is it possible, you know, we've all seen TV shows and, you know, I I say this all the time and I probably shouldn't, but it's a fact. We watch things, and it's thrown out there in a lot of places that, oh, I dropped the gun, oh, I knocked the gun over, and it fired. Is that actually possible? Well, yeah, I guess that it it has occurred over the years. I think there's any number of cases where you can go back and say that there was some kind of weapon malfunction where the firing pin would be driven forward, and the weapon does, in fact, discharge. However, please understand that is the exception and not the norm. You know, I, I got to tell you, just from my own personal experience, I've actually been involved in suicide investigations where family members have implored me, have implored me to ask the medical examiner to change a ruling and call it an accidental discharge and, you know, why the person is, you know, cleaning the weapon or they drop the weapon. And these people in many of these cases, own the weapon, and they have experience in weapons. And so it's dubious at best, I think, in, in many of these circumstances. And, you know, this goes back to one of the central a central premise in everything that we do as medical legal death investigators, you know, with our five manners of death. You know, homicide is the king of the hill, and the reason it is is because our working assumption is that all deaths are homicides until proven otherwise. And so you have to go down this kind of intellectual checklist, if you will, all right, and and kind of tick the boxes and eliminate everything else and see what kind of appears. So let's tick off a box here, Joe. First off, you have to rule out that it's not a possible suicide because to be able to shoot yourself with a long gun, with mm-hmm. a shotgun or a rifle, you're going to have to kind of be a little bit of a contortionist hmm. or able to use your feet 
just like you would your hands. Yeah, yeah, you you will, and you know, and I've I've had people that you know have actually pulled triggers with their toes. I've had people that have really, yeah, yeah. it's possible. Uh, yes, yeah, it is, it is. Listen, if if somebody is suicidal to that point, they'll they'll find a way to do it if their only means is to is to self-inflict it's it's much more difficult to actuate the trigger and what what i'm talking about what has to happen with a self-inflicted shotgun wound or any kind of long arm is that you have to place the butt that's the end of the weapon the non-working end of the weapon okay the non-business end as they say you have to kind of brace it somehow either on the floor and the individual gets over the weapon and places it you know, into their chest. I've had them place it under their chin. I've had people place it in, you know, in the center of their forehead and reach down with their thumb, perhaps, and depress the trigger. But a lot of this is going to be dependent upon the barrel length. Now, you know, if you're talking about a Remington 12-gauge shotgun, which in this case, in Bianca's case, this is set up for hunting. All right. This is not like a tactical shotgun where you see cops and military folks and people that have them for home defense where the barrel is shorter, where you can swing around a corner and not get caught up on anything. And those barrels tend to be a lot, lot shorter. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is going to give you a level of accuracy when you're firing it. And I got to tell you, if you're going out to, uh, to, to hunt a big cat like this, a leopard, first off, I'm going to be terrified personally, but I want to make sure that I'm as accurate as I possibly can be. And so that's the type of weapon we're talking about. The muzzle of this weapon, the barrel rather, is very long. And so how, how do you, how do you do this with a weapon like this if it is in fact a suicide? And it's very difficult Generally, I will have males that will do it because their arms tend to be longer. They have more height. They can kind of bend over and manipulate the weapon. When you have a lady that is her size and she's kind of diminutive, you know, how do you arrive at that at that position? And again, why why would you why would you choose to self inflict around into your body in with a weapon that is partially encased. So I think that, you know, from Jump Street, we can kind of rule out suicide here. And, of course, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into suicide investigation, like, you know, suicidal ideation, people vocalizing, you know, I don't want to go on anymore, I'm depressed, I've got all these other issues, previous attempts. And there was nothing here to indicate that that was the case with Bianca's death. Lawrence Rudolph initially told the consular chief in Zambia as they conducted their investigation that she may have died by suicide. But the investigation then ruled as an accidental discharge. What would have her body sustained? Well, you know, the ammunition that we're talking about is buckshot. It's it's double-aught buckshot. And so... Imagine, if you will, and, you know, our listeners of Body Bags are really good at this sort of thing because they they love forensics, and I'm sure that some are familiar with this. But just imagine, if you will, an object that is just smaller than a standard marble. Okay, everybody got that in in your mind's eye? And then think about multiple of those loaded into a single cartridge. Now, those those marbles that I'm referring to are about about 30 caliber in size so it's 
it's rather substantial. You know, if you've got that vision of a marble okay. in you. Give me, give, uh, you're saying that that 30 caliber is about the size of a standard marble? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, it, it's okay. a little bit smaller than a standard marble. So it's not, I'm just trying to give folks an understanding that it's, it is about that size approximately. It's the closest thing I can really come to. We're talking about buckshot, and the reason it's called buckshot is that you can go out and you hunt a buck with it. You can kill a buck deer, a big animal like that. I can only assume that that's the reason they purpose this, you know, because I got to tell you, I got no experience with big game hunting. I've always associated, say, for instance, the other weapon that they're carrying, you know, which is a large bore 375 caliber round that is a large bore. You use this to hunt things like a a rhinoceros or a, a hippopotamus or something like that, potentially, because they've bagged those kinds of animals. You would think that that you would want that. But no, she was going to use a shotgun. So with that idea in mind, when this weapon, the single round of buckshot, is discharged, you've got not just a single little marble, if you will, we'll just use that term, projectile coming out of the end of that, 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 that weapon. You've got multiple of these 30 caliber size projectiles coming out of the end of that muzzle. And Well, what happens? Well, what happens is, is that, remember, shotguns are what are called smoothbore. That means that there's no rifling in it. It doesn't twist at all, all right? When it comes out of that muzzle, all right, comes out in a little cup. It's called a shot cup. It kind of deploys like, it looks almost like a flower petal when it opens up out of the end of that, that weapon. And these little bitty projectiles come out of the end of this thing, and they slam into the target. Well, because they're not rifled, they're not staying with pinpoint accuracy going downrange. They're beginning to spread, all right? And as they spread, they get wider and wider apart. So whatever target that they wind up impacting is going to be kind of the initial impression that the investigators will give in order to determine range of fire. So if you've got a pattern that has just begun to spread let's say it's only you've got multiple of these little pellets that are hitting the body and say they're only i don't know they're no more than well let's just say you could you could throw a you could put a quarter over the size of it you know that that round when it came out of the came out of the end of that muzzle is has not spread at all but now when you start to step back and that pattern begins to get broader and broader and broader you know that there's a greater distance between the end of the muzzle and your target area. And in her case, one of the things that was witnessed, which is a fascinating story in and of itself. So what you just told me, Joe, or taught me, Joe, is that the difference with a shotgun and the type of ammunition that it uses, there's not going to be any stippling to be able to look for. Well, yeah, that that's... That's pretty much the case. Uh, you're you're not going to have it as prominently patterned in this particular case, and a lot of that because we believe she was would be evidenced with the clothing. And you know, one of the big questions that you would ask is, were the clothes preserved in any way? Is there any way to examine those? Because if if you do have powder 
that comes out of the end of this barrel. Let's just think about it just for a second. I want everybody to kind of get an idea. As a matter of fact, one of the things I teach my students, if you want to understand about powder distribution on a target area, go into your bathroom at home and get a little bit of baby powder, some talcum, all right, and put it, put it in the palm of your hand and then walk up to your bathroom mirror and gently blow it onto the bathroom mirror, all right? Now, the closer you are to that bathroom mirror, you'll get a bigger deposit on the mirror itself. But the further you move back away, I mean, everybody's seen baby powder. It just kind of, you know, puffs up in the air and then it just kind of drifts down. Kind of the same with powder coming out of the end of the gun, out of the end of the weapon. The closer you are, the closer you are to that target area, you're going to get a deposition of this powder that kind of sticks to this area and it's kind of embedded into the skin. The further you back you are, it's going to drift down. That's just, that's the dynamic of it. You know, powder, that powder itself, whether it's talcum powder or, or unburned gunpowder, whatever it is, it, it doesn't have it doesn't have the best aerodynamic characteristics. It's not like a projectile, like a lead projectile that holds on to that energy, you know, as it blasts out of the end of that muzzle. It's containing energy, all right, because it's solid, it's moving forward, and it slams into a target. With powder, it doesn't do that. That's why, you know, when Nancy and I talk about these things on her show, you begin to look look out beyond about 18 inches. And, you know, there's some disagreement, you know, because it's not real exacting. Some people say from 18 inches out to, you know, roughly 28, 30 inches, you're going to begin to get this drift where it'll begin to kind of fall away. Anything within 18 inches, though, you'll have powder distribution. So that's one of the big questions. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, that, that comes into play in death investigation is that you're not necessarily always going to have a witness that's going to be able to give you, you know, the straight story on this. And all you have left behind is the physical evidence. And that, that's powerful physical evidence, isn't it, when you think about it? You know, what, what's going to be left behind? What's going to be distributed on that target area? And if you don't have that with the clothing or a body, you got big trouble as an investigator. Well, I should have taken better notes, Professor Morgan, because what I actually meant to say <laughs> was you would not have striations. Although I, Stippling was a great answer, and he told me a lot. But what I meant to say was you're not going to have striations on buckshot. No, no, you're not. And that's that's an excellent point because, you know, most people out there, and I'm glad that most people don't know this about firearms. It's, it's geeky people like me, forensic scientists that study these sorts of things. You know, one of the things that we look for when we have a rifled weapon, which means that we've got all of these twists in the barrel, they imprint themselves on the exterior of this projectile that's going down the, the barrel as it's twisting and spinning in the barrel. That's why earlier, you know, when I'm talking about this 12-gauge Browning, um, it's a smooth bore weapon. It's like if you look down, if you shine a light into the muzzle of that weapon, and you can catch a glimpse from where the weapon kind of breaks open, you never look in the end of a muzzle of a weapon. You look down, if you can look down, shine a light down in that muzzle where the the, the live round is actually seated in there, you can actually see how smooth it is compared to, say, for instance, if you're talking about a hunting rifle. And the reason it's called rifle is it's rifled. It's It's got these, these twists in the barrel. And so when you examine, when firearms examiners examine projectiles out of shotgun, 
it's a bit more, I'm not going to use terms subjective, but it, there's not as much evidence that's left behind on these little balls that come out of the end of that smooth barrel that you can specifically tie it back to that particular weapon as much as you will with like a rifled weapon where it'll leave a specific ballistic signature on that surface. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and a big shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing free samples. I live in an area where allergies are a day-to-day issue, and finding an over-the-counter option for relief is like the holy grail. I use Astapro, and I strongly recommend you give it a try. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, and it's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays can take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Years ago, when I got out of my field full-time, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I had sleep disorder. I had depression. And for me, I had to turn to someone to talk to somebody that could aid me along the path to healing, to restore me to that person that maybe I was at one point in time, to make me better for not just myself, but my family. If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You can do this anytime that you like. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com bags today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com. That's better. H-E-L-P.com slash bags. You know, I've only covered one other homicide in my career off the continent of Africa, and that was the Oscar Pistorius case out of South Africa. Now, they were a bit more sophisticated down there with their crime scene investigation, but still it was, in some people's minds, lacking. But in the case of Bianca Rudolph she's literally in the wilderness she she is her death actually occurred on the property of one of the world's largest game preserves I can't even begin to fathom that you talk about isolation for me I think about what would I do if I was absent all the resources that I need to work a crime scene in that environment you talk about isolated I don't even know if that begins to describe it Jackie An investigation was not immediately pushed in the death of Bianca Rudolph as it was thought to be an accidental death. But as always, when there is an American death outside our country, the consulate in that area is notified. Now, Rudolph's body was sent to the funeral home and 
Lawrence Rudolph was pushing for cremation, saying that the time and the distance that it would not be possible to return Bianca's body to the U.S. But we know that Bianca and Lawrence Rudolph shipped animals back to the U.S. all the time. So why then could her body not be transported back to the U.S.? It, it, that's a fallacy. Of course it could be. The, the body is, is preserved. There's an embalming that takes place. The bodies are prepped, and they're sent back over. You know, I myself have, have actually, I've done autopsies, participated in autopsies that have come back literally from Africa. I know of three missionaries over the course of my career that I did autopsies on or assisted with them at the family's request when they got back to the U.S. And fascinatingly, in one of the most bizarre cases I've ever been involved in, I actually had a body that showed up in New Orleans when I was working down there packed in charcoal. I'd never seen anything like it. It was absolutely bizarre. But interestingly enough, the body was very well preserved. So, yeah, it's possible to embalm a body and send that body back to the U.S. I don't understand what this idea of, you know, we have to cremate the body and get the body back to the husband and have the body transported back to the U.S. in this manner. I mean, this is, you know, the 21st century that we live in now, and this is completely possible to do. So I, I don't understand the rush. It's mind, mind-boggling. But as an investigator, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, if I have family members that are push, push, push for cremations like this, it's going to make alarms go off in my head. Remember what, what I've already said. You know, every death, and I don't care how old the person is. I don't care how much disease they might have. As an investigator, I get one shot at this. My premise that I put forward is that every death, and I mean every death, is a homicide until I can prove otherwise. Well, the consular chief in Zambia obviously thought the same way that you did, Joe, because the consular chief and two other embassy officials went to the funeral home to take photographs and preserve any evidence because the push was on for her to be cremated within three days. And we found out later that when Lawrence Rudolph found out that photos were taken of his wife, he was livid. So what's the possibility that those photos could have shown us oh it's it's remarkable and a tip of the cap to the consulate down there the the gentleman that actually got involved in this he's a u.s he's a u.s government employee works for the state department but in addition to that this guy is a former marine all right you, you've heard the old adage you know there are no such things as ex-marines or former marine well he's a former marine and he he thought that this was super bizarre itself so he decides to break out the camera and not just break out the camera he broke out the tape measure <laughs> and he actually did many of the things that we do in the morgue you know when he went to the to the funeral home uh, where the body was he began taking scale photographs of these injuries that she had sustained took measurements of of the defects and had voluminous notes apparently and guess what he did when he he had acquired all of this stuff 
he turned it over to the FBI because, you know, he he's looking at this from the perspective of somebody that knows his way around weapons, all right? Like I said, he's a former Marine. He's had exposure to firearms, trust me. And so he's looking at this. He's thinking, this, this just this stinks. I, I, don't, I don't like the way this looks. I don't like what we're being told. I don't like the speed at which this is happening. You know, you yourself, Jackie, had mentioned three days. Wanted it done in three days. Why the rush? I don't understand. And so it, it, made, it made his senses start to tingle there for a moment, and he decided to step back and do his own examination. And thank goodness he did because, you know, that's the only examination that was done on her remains. In combination to the Consular General's suspicions is a friend of Bianca Rudolph's asked the FBI to investigate. And that kicked off an in-depth inquiry. She says, according to the friend, Lawrence Rudolph had been having a long-term affair with an office manager. The couple owned more than one dental practice actually millionaires yet he was having a long-term affair according to the friend and that is why she thought that Bianca was killed you've already got this level of suspicion that is you know that's rising up here and you're beginning to think well what in the what in the world you know first off why is he wanting the body cremated so quickly and I'm sure that when Bianca's friend heard about this she's thinking wait hang on this is she's not a neophyte She's not just somebody that has been handed a weapon and, you know, thrown out in the the bush of of Africa and told to go and kill a leopard. This is somebody that is learned when it comes to stalking big game. This is somebody that's probably, you know, compared to me, (laughs) somebody that's fearless out there that knows what they're doing. How, How does she wind up shot? And so when her friend hears about all of this, it's quite, you know, it's quite fascinating, you know, that that they would they would be in such a, a rush to do this. And so her friend automatically contacts the FBI and says, look, there's just something not right here. He's in a foreign country. My friend is dead. He's had an ongoing affair, which, you know, from a family dynamic standpoint, you know, my understanding is that Bianca was aware of the affair um, and that they had been living this kind of open marriage for a while, but she didn't divorce him. And so this is something that has been allowed within the context of their marriage to go on and on and on for quite some time. This case is a forensic smorgasbord because you can't do a full autopsy on a body that doesn't exist anymore. Investigators had to rely on the photos and the recollections of people there and what was seen by the Consular General. Then you throw in the investigation that started in the U.S., which had to become a computer investigation in that they started looking back for documents and proof of the affair and this long-time activity. In putting all of this together, how did they come up with the idea that Lawrence Rudolph killed his wife? Well, you know, one of the things that, that kind of drew them in was the fact that Lawrence had apparently taken out multiple insurance policies on Bianca. And we're talking about millions and millions of dollars from a variety of sources of these policies that had been taken out. And pretty quickly, I think, after her 
her demise, he was putting forth the paperwork to get these checks processed and get them into his hands. And there didn't seem to be as well, I think, that one of the things that raised the suspicion of investigator stateside was that they began to look at this and think, well, he it's really kind of an inappropriate amount of grief or time for grieving because, you know, upon his arrival back in the U.S., first off, there was a delay in actually telling his children that their mom had passed. I think that it, it had been several days before they were ever even notified. But another level of suspicion here is the fact that he decided to take a trip with his mistress out of the country in very short order. And again, you know, that's, that's going to make alarm bells for investigators go off. But there was also one other piece that you got to go back to Zambia to look at. Now, they didn't do, matter of fact, they did a, a poor job relative to the scene and the body and all these sorts of things. But what did happen, there was a, a firearms examiner in Zambia that worked for the government over there, and they did get their hands on that shotgun. And one of the things that they did, and this, of course, this information went back to the FBI, was that their firearms examiner over there conducted what's referred to as a drop test. And just so our listeners know, uh, with a drop test, what you will do is that the intent is to this weapon that is essentially, if you will, for lack of a better term, it's cocked. That means it's in the ready position. You don't have to have a live round in it, but it's cocked and it's in the ready position. So let's just say that you take this weapon and you hold it at two feet, okay? And then you drop it on the butt. That means the back the back portion of it where it seeds into the shoulder and you crack open the weapon after it's been dropped from that height and you check to see if the firing pin is still not actuated then you go up to three feet drop it again see if see if it's still there in 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 place and hasn't been actuated then up to four feet and that's what they did this progressive test and the drop test revealed that this weapon didn't malfunction that it that you know after this this testing was conducted that it was proven to them at least in order to actuate that firing pin you have to pull that trigger you have to pull the trigger and there's no amount of dropping that could have taken place in that bedroom where she was shot in order for the thing to accidentally discharge into her chest Just imagine you're in the bathroom, you've had a long two weeks out in this wilderness hunting, doing that thing that you you love the most, apparently. And all of a sudden, in this tiny two-room cabin, you hear the report of a weapon, the sound of this thing being discharged. It would have been almost like being sealed up in an oil drum and somebody banging on the outside of it with a hammer. That's how loud it would have been. And that's, and that's the case. That's what Dr. Rudolph said. He was in the bathroom and he heard the shot. 
But other people heard the shot too. There were people in a cabin. It's early in the morning, about 5.30 a.m. This is when hunters get up and they get moving. They're eating breakfast. They're ready to go. And people from down the way heard the shot as well, and they came running to the cabin. Here's the point that I find absolutely fascinating about this. Dr. Rudolph says he was in the bathroom in the shower getting ready to go home, to travel home from their trip. Doesn't it stand to reason that if you all of a sudden hear this big boom that there's a shot, that you're not going to take the time to get completely dressed to your shoes to go find out what this big noise is in your cabin? Lord, Yet no. he did. Yeah, yeah, you're... you're... <laughs> You're hopping out of the shower, all right? You're hopping out of the shower. This is like a grenade going off inside of the room immediately adjacent to you. You're going to want to find out, and you're not going to take time to throw your clothes on like you're going to dinner or something or going going to breakfast. You're going to hop out with a towel on, and this is, you know, this is the mother of your children here. You walk in, she's face down on the floor. There's a weapon laying there about three feet away, according to what he said. And your first instinct, and this is this is not a person that's never seen blood before, all right? Now, granted, he's not an MD. He's a dentist. But, you know, let's face it. He's had experience with, with you know, horrible things he's seen. And plus, it's his wife. Immediately, you would think that, you know, he's going to be there in a towel. He's going to be doing chest compressions, all these sorts of things. And that's what he had told in one part of his story. But, you know, as I'd mentioned, when this the sound of this weapon being discharged traveled out, you know, from, from this cabin, there was an area that's not very far away. It's like the, the area where people, the kind of commons area where everybody gathers, and there were people in that commons area eating breakfast at 5.30 in the morning. They heard the shot as well. And one of these individuals who is one of the local guides went running to the cabin. Well, what didn't marry up with Dr. Rudolph's statement relative to you know, he was in the shower and this sort of thing, is when this gentleman came up from the breakfast area, he he saw Dr. Rudolph. Dr. Rudolph was fully clothed. He had shoes on. You know, the, you know okay, well, they're getting ready to leave. The, you know, they have to blast out of there and go catch a plane and get back to the U.S. But, you know, w- which is it, Doc? Were you in the shower or were you fully clothed? And again, this is one of the things that we look for in investigations, inconsistencies versus consistencies with stories. That's why many times that when people are questioned, they're asked to repeat the story numerous times to see if, if it maintains continuity. And in this case, it, 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 really, it really didn't. And it's quite a tell. You know, when she would have been observed on the floor there, and, you know, I'd like to go back to this idea of, of this injury she sustained, there would have been blood everywhere. And one other point here that I didn't touch on earlier that's quite fascinating. Remember, it is being put forth that when she was shot, this weapon was already encased or partially encased. Remember, the the story is that she was placing this 12-gauge shotgun into the scabbard or into the soft case. And it discharged. Well, folks might not realize this, but 
when a weapon discharges like this and it passes through what we call the round passes through what we refer to as an intermediate target one of the other things that would have been witnessed in this area first off the end of the scabbard would have been blown out because you're talking about 12 gauge round you would have seen bits of fabric you would have seen upon the exterior of the case if it's actual leather or if it's vinyl or or pleather or whatever it is this thing's made out of that debris would have passed into the body as well and you could see that around the injury was any of that stuff seen and and did it get destroyed in attempts to resuscitate her because allegedly Dr. Rudolph says that he did try to resuscitate her and this would have been quite the messy affair he would have been absolutely covered in blood when you're talking about a shotgun wound to the chest her chest would have been opened up particularly at this range it would have been a gaping injury more than likely and so understand that when you're giving chest compressions which you know any right thinking person would be doing if you're trying to resuscitate somebody for every little defect or hole you know the little injuries in the body you're going to have blood issuing forth up out of that area and if the person still has what's referred to any kind of agonal respirations or pulse that means they're in kind of the process of dying the body will be pushing blood out of those areas as well so you're gonna be covered your hands will be covered your arms will be covered if you're wearing clothing your clothing will be covered in blood it, it, it would just be an absolute mess Bianca was found lying face down next to a dresser does is that logical Joe if she shot in the chest that she would fall forward I mean does that you understand why I'm asking that yeah, you know, I think I think a lot of, and there's been any number of cases over the years, you know, where people have asked, well, do people fall in specific manners? Do they fall categorically in one position if there is a self-inflicted gunshot wound versus an accidental gunshot wound versus a homicide? And there is nothing, I mean, there is nothing out there that dictates that you will fall in a specific position. So, when someone is found face down, for instance, in this position, that just happens to be the position in which gravity dictated their resting point because the body is so insulted by this event that has taken place. It's not like you're, you're purposing to go down on your hands and knees and fall, fall forward. It's whatever gravity dictates what will happen. And one other thing, too, that you know we can kind of dispel as well um, and again, I go back to, you know, I'm always kind of picking on Hollywood, but, you know, we see these these programs and whatnot where people are shot with weapons, say, for instance, a shotgun blast in particular, and people get blown back two and three feet. That doesn't happen. The body essentially absorbs that energy, and, you know, people will many times drop uh, down, uh, approximating the last location where they were standing alive. It, they're not going to be blown back two or three feet. That's, it's not like you're getting hit with a car here, you know, big blunt object. It just doesn't happen. Many people will be, be driven slightly, but there's not enough energy over enough contact surfaces of the body to drive somebody back through the air. That's just not going to happen. But the injury will still be ghastly. Ultimately, Lawrence Rudolph is charged with foreign murder 
in the death of his wife, Bianca. And there has been a resolution, Joe. Yeah, there has been. Just recently, Dr. Rudolph was, in fact, found guilty. Not just found guilty of of this foreign murder, which is an interesting point in and of itself from a legal standpoint. But you know what? One of the things that people are always asking, you know, they're always asking when somebody commits uh, homicide, well, what's the motivation? Is it greed? Is it passion? You know, is it lust? Is it anger? Well, in this case, apparently, you know, it it comes down to to greed. He was he was found guilty also of insurance fraud, and this is this is kind of fascinating because this is a federal case as opposed to a state charge. Remember, this event took place in Zambia, but what the feds were able to do is that even though his practice is located in Pennsylvania, he was charged federally in the district court in Colorado, and that's where his trial was held, because that's where the company that he defrauded was headquartered. So now, he's in prison. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.